If you were here with us last week, don't worry, today's discussion is not going to be as technical as, uh, as we found in grammar, but I, I hope that you found our study in grammar to be of help. Uh, remember that all this is posted as well to the website, so whatever you want to listen to, again, you can always go there and listen to it again and even slow it down if you'd like. Now, over the past 10 weeks, we've discussed the biblical warrant for studying how to interpret the Bible. We've seen that it's important that we as believers take seriously a study of hermeneutics. And we surveyed a brief history of hermeneutics from the time of the Old Testament Jews even to the present day. And we did this so that we might sort of get a big picture of various historical approaches to interpreting the Bible and seeing how, just how important our hermeneutic is. You know, as goes the hermeneutics, our, our interpretation of the Bible, so goes the church. And we then examined the biblical qualifications for a good interpreter, and we discussed how that regeneration, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit himself as our interpreter, among many other things, are necessary for properly interpreting the Bible. But because hermeneutics is both the art and science of Bible interpretation, we have spent at least the last several weeks exploring three principles. They are principles of interpretation that we've called the general principles of hermeneutics, and they're general because they apply to any literature. Really, these three apply to any literature you examine, any text you examine. And you will recall that the literal principle means that ultimately we must respect the Bible as literature. We must let it speak for itself. Read it according to its plain literary sense. And so we should default to a literal interpretation, though there will be times when a figurative interpretation will be the plain sense. And so as they say, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, so you'll end up with nonsense. So that's the literal principle, and it really emphasizes the need to respect the authorial intent. That's what the author, the original author of the text, intended. That is the true objective meaning of any text. Then we saw the contextual principle, and the contextual principle is telling us to read any text in light of its context. And we must respect all levels of context, including both the literal grammatical dimension of context, and then there's a historical cultural dimension to any text that we should also be aware of. And so we considered how to, uh, that after we've understood the context, we are in, then we are in a position to properly understand the word, the phrase, the sentence, the paragraph we're looking at. But we, we need context to cross this kind of a gap that separates us from the original authors of Scripture, the human authors, and ultimately the divine author who gave that word of God to the original audience when he did. Then over the past couple weeks, we saw the grammatical principle, and that encourages us to remember the rules of grammar. We must remember the rules of grammar if we are to properly interpret the Bible. And why is this? Well, the grammatical principle recognizes God's intelligent design in language. And that when 
the biblical authors communicated God's message, they did so using the rules that God gave them in language. So we considered how to analyze words and clauses and sentences in light of their meanings and their function. And actually, we said all these three principles, the literal, contextual, and grammatical principle, are necessary for properly interpreting any piece of literature. But the fourth and final general principle of interpretation that we're going to look at is what we would call the theological principle. And this would be unique to the Bible because the Bible is uniquely theological literature. We recognize the Bible is not just the work of human literature. There, was a, there is a divine author behind it. And so this is where we must keep in mind the theological principle. So these are general principles of hermeneutics. There are what we would call special principles. And by special, we mean... Of course, they're, they're not more special than these general principles, but they are genre-specific. They are specific to whether you are studying narrative or poetry or prophecy or some genre, specific genre of scripture. But these are the general principles of hermeneutics, which means they will apply to any genre of the Bible. All right. So before we look at the theological principle, let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would guide us now into truth. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what it is we're looking at. And give us the ability to put these things into practice by your grace so we can be better students of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A really good book is a book that you can read over and over again and you can still appreciate the details. You can still see things that you missed the first time through. And you might take, for instance, a really good collection of books like The Lord of the Rings Trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. And this is just an extraordinary literary genius. And we know that because you can read those books and you can read those books again and again and you can see things that you missed the first time and you can appreciate it more the second or the third time after reading it. And there's many, of course, works of human literature that are like that. But of course, if this is true of something like Tolkien's trilogy, then how much more is it true of the Bible? Which is not simply a literary masterpiece on a human level, but it is the work of our God. And you will find, and I, I believe this is just so true, and I have experienced this time and time again, that the more you read the Bible over and over again, and you compare scripture with scripture, you will be amazed at the connections. You will appreciate the Bible so much more. And so what we're looking at today is really a principle of hermeneutics that honors that fact. It's what we call, or what my pastor called, the theological principle of hermeneutics. And we want to begin by asking, what exactly is the theological principle? What do we mean by this? The theological principle involves taking a theological approach to the Bible. This principle it really involves recognizing the Bible's theological nature. The Bible is a canon of theological truth. It is truth from God. And we might ultimately summarize the principle this way is that it means to respect the Bible as God's word. So whereas the literal principle of hermeneutics is to respect the Bible as literature, we're not to treat the Bible like some secret code, but like a, any ordinary piece of literature. We should we let the Bible speak for itself. At the same time, the Bible is more than just literature. It's God's word. And so that's what the theological principle is really concerned with. 
And what is meant by the theological principle? I think we could say more practically what this looks like, respecting the Bible as God's word, is using what we call the analogy of faith and scripture. Using the analogy of faith and scripture. So I want you to know what these expressions mean. The analogy of faith is a term that comes out of the Reformation. You'll remember that the Reformation itself was essentially a reformation of biblical hermeneutics. For centuries, the church at large had really enslaved people to a mystical fourfold interpretation of the Bible that basically denied Scripture's clarity and said that the common man was not able to read the Bible for himself. He needed a priest to interpret the Bible for him. But the Reformers disagreed, and they worked to translate the Bible from Latin into the languages of the people and encouraged people like you and I to read and study the Bible for ourselves. Well, since not everything in Scripture is equally plain, we acknowledge that. Even Peter acknowledges that in 2 Peter 3. The Reformers understood that there's a need for using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And they call this principle the analogy of faith. Analogy meaning a comparison and faith referring to the faith the body of Christian doctrine. That is, what is sound biblical teaching? So the Reformers encourage people, like you and I, to interpret what it is we're reading in Scripture, in the Bible, over against the rest of the Bible itself. And the Westminster Confession would later go on to summarize this rule like this. Listen, it states, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So the rule is compare scripture with scripture, or more specifically here, interpret unclear text, what is at least unclear to you, in light of what is clear. Use the clear text to shed light and meaning on the unclear texts that you encounter. You know, sometimes people want to teach that baptism washes away sin, and they will point to a text like in 1 Peter 3, which is admittedly among just any commentator you examine. It's, it's an obscure text, the end of that passage. And yet they will go to this, what is widely recognized as an unclear text, to basically ignore all that the Bible clearly teaches about the blood of Jesus Christ washing away our sin, regardless of whether we are immersed or not in water. So we don't want to take what is obscure and try to use it then to reinterpret everything that is clear. But vice versa, we want to interpret what is obscure to us in light of what is plain. Measuring our interpretation of the Bible against the rest of Scripture is what we call the analogy of faith. And that's going to be essential if we're going to respect the entire Bible as God's word. And by the way, pretty much a subset of this idea, the analogy of faith, is what the Reformers also called the analogy of Scripture. It's just, this is more specific. This would be like where we would say we're trying to understand how Judas died and we're reading about it in the Gospel. Well, we could compare something that is stated in the book of Acts. We could compare Scripture that speaks to the same event, the same person, the same issue. And that's using the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture is comparing parallel passages. Whereas the analogy of faith is broader than that, it is certainly acknowledging that you can use all of Scripture, at least in principle, 
to shed light on whatever it is you're studying in Scripture. So you get the idea. The analogy of faith in Scripture, the theological principle, it is acknowledging the fact that Scripture is the greatest authority on itself. And we need to understand that. So why observe the theological principle? What's the basis of this principle? Well, I want to give you five reasons that we must observe the theological principle in our interpretation of Scripture. Uh, First, it recognizes Scripture as the highest authority on Scripture. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself, because God is the author of Scripture, and there can be no higher authority than God, right? So when you come to a passage in Scripture you don't understand, before you reach for a commentary, just remember, just remember, that commentary is not infallible. None will be. But, of course, the Scripture is. The Bible is infallible, and so therefore it's the final test of authority. Scripture itself is the final test of authority. So let's be Bereans, right? They, they were listening to Paul preach, and they said, mm, let's check what he says against Scripture. Whoever it is, whatever commentator, remember the Bible always has the final say. Why should we take this theological approach to the text of Scripture? Secondly, it recognizes all Scripture is unified by a single author. Uh, Because each of the 40 or so different human authors who wrote the Bible were all equally inspired by God in what they wrote, we can recognize that the Bible is ultimately unified. It's unified by a single divine author. So when I'm studying what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 4 about justification by faith apart from the works of the law, I can also look at what James is saying in James chapter 2 about our faith being justified really by works that is proven by our works. And we can see there's no contradiction here. It's the same God, same author. And as we use the theological principle here, recognizing scripture, all of it is unified by a single author. We are in a position to harmonize different perspectives even if on the same biblical truth. Man, if you get a hold of what James is saying and what Paul is saying as regards justification and faith and works, you will be immensely helped and you will avoid errors that are to opposite extremes that we don't have time to look at, but this is very important. So let's just expect to find guidance for what we're looking at in our passage somewhere else in the Bible because it's all authored by God. Thirdly, you should take seriously this theological approach to Scripture because it recognizes the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Now, the word plenary is a word we use for all. Okay, So all words of Scripture are inspired. If we really believe that this book, the Bible, then we should act like it. Every time we come to this book, we should approach it with excitement that no word or phrase or idea or doctrine that we are examining in the Bible is going to be uh, revealed in isolation from everything else. But what God has given us here in the Bible is something he's given to us in a greater context, an entire canon, a library of biblical truth. It's all equally God's revelation to us. Fourth, you should take this theological approach to Scripture because it recognizes that Scripture cannot contradict itself in any point. We can say the Bible is a self-interpreting book because it is without contradiction in all of its teachings. You know, consistency with previous revelation was the 
fundamental truth test for any prophet of God in the Old Testament, and that is a fundamental truth test that is reiterated in the New Testament. If whatever is stated is contradicting what was stated before, it's not from God, all right? So we should recognize Scripture cannot contradict itself. God does not contradict himself. There are many scriptures I could give you along these lines. And this is not, by the way, to deny the possibility of scribal errors that entered in through time into the transmission of a text or even apparent contradictions. But basically, we can and must take a theological approach. That's my point. Because scripture is internally consistent with itself. Fifthly, you should take this theological approach to the Bible because it recognizes that all scripture is unified around a common theme. And this, of course, should follow from the fact that Scripture is all unified by a common author. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible, from beginning to end, combines to form a single coherent message against which any passage can be localized or understood. You might say that the basic theme of the entire Bible is Christ. That's, of course, true. When we were studying eschatology, we made the point of stepping back and looking, trying to get a big picture view of the Bible, and I gave you what is really my mapping of the biblical plot line from many different scholars I've read, and that has to do with this idea of the entire Bible from beginning to end is ultimately about God's plan to glorify himself through the restoration, through restoring his kingdom. The entire Bible is about the kingdom of God. You have to, oh, it's just amazing how this key opens up the entire text. Uh, God's restoring his kingdom in creation, but he's doing it through the promised redemption of his son, Jesus Christ. So when we understand the big picture of the Bible, we see the coherence of the same unified message running from Genesis to Revelation, it helps center me. It helps bring me back to firm ground, and it gives me a reference point through which to understand even unclear texts that I'm looking at. So I think that framework is important. So there's certainly a good basis for applying the theological principle. Why should we respect the Bible as God's word? Well, if we believe it's God's word, we better treat it like that, of course. And of course, this is not a course on bibliology, so our point here is not to argue why we believe the Bible is God's word. That's an entirely different course, entirely different series of studies, but... For us who believe the Bible is God's word and we want to know how to interpret it as such, we better apply the theological principle. So how do we apply the theological principle? Well, that's our last main point. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at this. And this will definitely take the rest of our time. Unfortunately, many, many misinterpretations from the Bible, many, many ways that people twist the Bible have to do with interpreters jumping to this kind of a theological approach. They want to start immediately comparing what they are reading in Scripture with another passage that they're aware of, or looking for similarities with what they think they understand in Scripture before they've really done their homework, before they've, can I say, acknowledged the first three general principles of hermeneutics. Man, you better pay attention to the literary and contextual and grammatical principles before you just jump to the theological principle. But many people do that. In fact, any cult that twists the Bible to further its own dogmas is a great example of this. Cults will latch on to a particular verse 
and they will then string together support from other verses in the Bible without really doing their homework on what those verses are actually teaching. But they support their own misinterpretation by other misinterpreted scriptures. So you may not be in a cult, but we can all be guilty of misapplying the theological principles. So here's some guidelines. I want to give you six guidelines that will prove helpful in knowing how to properly compare scripture with scripture, how to properly interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. First, prioritize contextual grammatical analysis. Contextual grammatical analysis, that might sound like a mouthful, but in other words, this is very simple. Before we jump to comparing the text we're studying with a string of other texts and just trying to make a case, prove our point, we must first examine the immediate context of the passage. And, and we must carefully follow the rules of grammar because what it is we should first and foremost be after is the authorial intent of the passage we're studying. Not building a doctrine, not building a dogma, but first understanding, is this actually what God intended by what he wrote here? So we want to prioritize a contextual grammatical analysis of Scripture. And the first and best way then to approach the Bible is to discover the authorial intent of any passage by reading it plainly, studying its immediate context. Don't just jump to another book of the Bible, but look at what that very author is saying in that very context. And then, of course, carefully follow the rules of grammar. That will prevent you from doing what we call proof texting the Bible, just just coming to the Bible and trying to prove your own idea from it. And let's just say you confront somebody about their sin, and maybe this has happened to you before, it certainly happened to me, but you confront somebody about their sin, or you're having a conversation, you say something that they deem judgmental, and so they say, well, doesn't the Bible say, Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. Don't judge. They can show you the verse, Matthew 7, 1. And they might even support this idea with, don't you know that the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, that the one who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. Don't judge. God is love. And people will string together their own ideology from the Bible to create this kind of libertarian, very pluralistic view of truth and all that, and morality, uh, relativism, anything you want. What does this mean, though? When people approach the Bible this way, what are they doing? Where's the error in this? Well, the basic fundamental error they're committing is they are misinterpreting Matthew 7, 1 or 1 John 4, 8 because they are, first of all, ignoring the authorial intent of those texts by ignoring the context. Look at the immediate context. Just see what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, 1 or see what John is saying in 1 John 4. It clearly isn't moral relativism. It, it clearly isn't a pluralistic idea of truth, that truth is anything you want it to be. That could not be farther from the truth. So, just saying, prioritize contextual grammatical analysis, and, and that will help protect us from misinterpreting or misapplying the theological principle. A second way to apply, a guideline for applying the theological principle, is acknowledge your own presuppositions. You know that it's just a, a fact of human psychology, I guess, that we tend to notice in a text what we wish to see there. We all tend to notice what we're looking for. I remember when I 
first purchased a Nissan Altima. I've had two in my lifetime already, but when I first purchased a Nissan Altima, I saw Nissan Altimas everywhere. I noticed them. Same make and model, different makes and models. I was aware of it. And this is a simple psychological reality. That people who are aware of something in the Bible, maybe they're excited about it, they're interested in it, they will tend to see that in places where maybe it's not to be found. It's the mirage complex, okay? And so I say that because when you come to the Bible, just be aware. Maybe you have a view that is completely opposed to drinking, or maybe you believe drinking in moderation. Is that going to affect the way you tend to view the text? Is that going to color your interpretation? Sure. Or your view on marriage. If there's no marriage and divorce, or if there is marriage and divorce, is that going to affect your interpretation of passages? Just be aware. We, we can't avoid presuppositions, but we need to be honest with how we handle the text by acknowledging them and not claiming that we're perfectly neutral when the fact of the matter is that's impossible. So if a text seems unclear to us, essentially one of two things is true. The text itself may be what is somewhat difficult to understand in the sense that Peter admits, Peter himself admits in 2 Peter 3, some things in Scripture are hard to understand. So that could be the case when you come to the Bible and something is hard to understand. The text itself is not as clear as, say, some other texts. However, something else could be true, and or both, right? And that is your lens is not clear. (laughs) Your lens is blurred. I mean, if the lens through which you are examining a text is dirty, the image itself of the text is going to be foggy. It's going to be obscured. And so sometimes people come to a passage in the Bible and they don't think it's plain, so they think, well, you've got to go to another text to interpret that. But the problem there is their presuppositions are obscuring their vision of what is really plain. And we'll go on to see this later, but this is one reason we should take advantage of the church, because sometimes we can deceive ourselves to think something is really difficult and complicated when it's actually staring you in the face. And the church has understood this for a long time. So don't forget about the fact that your presuppositions will influence your concept of what is clear and unclear. And I could, I could certainly give you many examples of that. So how, how can we prevent presuppositional blindness? I will just say, be aware of your presuppositions. We all have them. And, uh, and then view... What you can also do is try to view the passage that you're examining through your opponents, or, or through, maybe opponents a strong word, but through the lens of somebody who disagrees with you. Maybe it's an eschatological position you're studying. When we looked at, there's different views of the rapture, there's different views of the millennial kingdom. And there's room for disagreement on those things legitimately. But if we're going to examine those things, we should do so as honestly as possible, examining these texts through the lens of those we disagree with and trying to understand why do they come to the conclusions they do. If we don't do that, I don't think we're really being intellectually honest. And so let's admit we all have presuppositions and the more we are honest, forthright about them, the more it will help us as we attempt to apply the theological principle. A third guideline for applying this theological approach to Scripture is locate scriptures that correspond with your passage. This should be obvious enough. We want to use the analogy of faith, so we want to compare scripture with scripture. We want to compare what we believe is not so plain with what is more plain, perhaps. And so what we can do to achieve this 
is we want to search for any scriptures that correspond to our text. And there are several possible ways that one passage may correspond with another. So I'll just list these up here for you. First, there may be a corresponding word. And if you're looking at the word mercy or justice, and you're trying to study that in your text, you might look at what the Bible has to say about mercy and justice elsewhere. And boy, it has a lot to say. Of course, you could also look for a corresponding phrase. If you were studying this phrase, in Christ, a glorious, beautiful, loaded phrase in the New Testament, wow, there's a lot of scriptures that would correspond to this phrase you're looking at in your particular passage. Another way you could locate scriptures that correspond with your passage, maybe a corresponding theme. Say if you were studying the theme of redemption, you wouldn't just look up the word redemption or redeemed, even cognates of that word, but you would also want to see where the concept itself, the theme itself of redemption plays out. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5 is a scripture that tells us God took Jesus, made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, this is one way of of seeing the redemption of God playing out, but the word redemption isn't found there. So you just need to be aware then that sometimes the, the word or phrase might not be used explicitly, but the theme can can certainly be there. Another way that we can locate scriptures corresponding to our passage is asking whether there's some kind of a statement citation relationship. Is this text cited elsewhere or is it a citation of another scripture? And there are examples of that. You'll come across places in the Bible where it says, for it is written. Jesus many times in the gospel says, for it is written. Paul at different times says, for it is written. And so, if you want to study that text, you probably want to locate what is being cited in that context. I think that would be very wise. And sometimes those citations, by the way, will not be direct quotations. They will be paraphrases. They will be loose loose citations. A lot of times in Acts, maybe I'm thinking of Acts chapter 2, Peter cites from Psalm 16 relating to the resurrection of Christ. And it's a more of a paraphrase, but it's a citation. Another relationship that you want to consider is a statement-illusion relationship. Is the text you're examining elsewhere alluded to, or is this text an illusion of a previous scripture? You know, one example of this would be when Jesus is talking about the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. He's not citing from Jonah, but he's alluding to. He mentions this, and so you would want to be aware of the story of Jonah, obviously. And I think along with this, a, a subset of this would be all these type, anti-type relationships in Scripture. If you're reading in, say, Hebrews, and you're looking at Melchizedek, you're like, what? Melchizedek? Well, there's no citation here, but, but it's talking about it. It's alluding to something that, of course, comes from Genesis, and you would want to look at the story of Melchizedek and all of what he's about to better understand and appreciate what the author of Hebrews is saying. Another relationship is prediction fulfillment. You could ask, is this text I'm studying a fulfillment to a previous prediction, or... Is this a prediction that is later fulfilled? Many times that will be plain in Scripture, but not always. Not always is a fulfillment that is recorded, say, in the Gospels, going to be prefaced with, this was fulfilled, you know, this happened uh, to fulfill what was written by Isaiah or something. That's not always going to happen. So you want to use this theological approach to say, wow, maybe, maybe this is a fulfillment of something predicted before in the Bible. And then I'll just leave you one more 
a way to locate scriptures that correspond your passage with your passage is to consider in a command obedience relationship. Does this scripture record obedience to a command previously given? Or, or is this passage I'm looking at, is it describing an obedience to a command illustrated elsewhere? That would be important. If I'm studying what's going on in the book of Joshua or even in the, the Kings and Chronicles and all that, I want to be aware of the Torah and the commands God gave his people. Because a lot of that is in direct obedience or disobedience to what comes before. This is using this theological principle to better understand and appreciate the Bible. Now, as you search for any scriptures that, that correspond with your passage, I just want to leave you with a couple things here. This also involves locating any scriptures that challenge your interpretation of the passage. So maybe one example here would be if I'm studying the deity of Christ, then I want to also consider those passages that I know. People like the cults again or those of other religions or skeptics, whoever, are going to say, well, what about this? What about where Jesus says the Father is greater than I? And you should say, well, if Jesus is divine, there must be a way then of harmonizing that statement with Jesus' deity. And of course, that statement would be harmonized in understanding the humanity of Christ as such in the incarnation. But that's, you know, again, a deeper discussion. So just be aware of that. Of course, you will encounter at times paradoxes. There are things that appear to be contradictions, but they are actually not. We encounter those all the time in life. Um, but just don't ignore texts just because they seem to challenge your view and make you uncomfortable. Again, we're not trying to hide anything. We're trying to understand the entire Bible. We're trying to be Bereans here. We're trying to use the scriptures to interpret scriptures. And, uh, of course, if we, if we don't do this, we'll be selective with the evidence. And, and if we do this, we, we look at scriptures that challenge our interpretation of a passage, we will also be enriching our understanding of scripture. And then I would just add also search for any relevant portions of scripture you might have missed by utilizing good resource materials. So you might be wondering, well, Pastor, how could I ever, because I don't, like, I don't have the whole Bible memorized, uh, how could I ever do all this kind of thing you're talking about? Well, you can use many Bible study tools like cross-references. If you have a Bible, you notice there's a, there's a cross-reference, there's a little column or some margins there, and they have some numbers and letters that are giving you other references that correspond to the reference you're examining. Now, having said that, none of those are infallible, Right? But it's a good place to start. And remember, generally speaking, these people who, who give us these resource materials, they at least know a lot more than we do when it comes to the text we're handling. That's gen just a general rule. So we can use cross-references, maybe a study Bible, concordances, uh, as we mentioned before, theological dictionaries, topical Bibles. Even Bible software is excellent. I, I just can't say enough about it. I mean, if you, if you live in the 21st century, please... <laughs> Please avail yourself. Take advantage of this, all right? If you use a car or anything else in the 21st century, please use this technology because it will tremendously help you. I mean, you could just type that phrase, in Christ, in quotations into your Bible software program, and boom, here's all these hits. So use these tools to help yourself, and it'll make your work easier. A fourth guideline Getting back to how to apply the theological principle, a fourth guideline for applying the theological principle is harmonize your passage with the rest of the biblical data. 
We're seeking to harmonize Scripture with Scripture, and so we want to consider the following measures. I'll give you three. First of all, as you're seeking to harmonize your passage with the rest of the biblical data, interpret the unclear in light of the clear. This is the analogy of faith again, explicitly stated. So when, when Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 15.29 about people that are being baptized for the dead, and, and he describes those who are baptized for the dead, what does that mean? Well, some people have rather strangely, rather oddly taken this to, to be a precedent for why we should be dipped in water for people that have died, okay? And they do this. Uh, this would be like the Mormons, namely. And, and yet, if we are to interpret this text, which is, again, admittedly unclear, it's, it's obscure in a lot of ways. You, you could take a vote on it, and you'd see. Just about any commentator is going to tell you there's different views. This is admittedly not a plain text. Well, we compare this with other principles and scriptures in the Bible, and we see we can do nothing for the dead. We can't change their state of affairs. So why would we think that being dipped in water is somehow benefiting them? Obviously, Paul's not prescribing a practice of being baptized for the dead. That's not the point here. And you would get that from simply saying, let's interpret that passage in light of what is plain. I could give you other examples. I think of Jesus in First. Peter 3, uh, 19, I believe it is, where it says he descended. You know, he's descending. It talks about, many people take that passage and talk about him descending into hell. They say after he died and he was in hell three days until his bodily resurrection. So that was a teaching. And that was very prevalent in the early church, by the way. But if we just take this text, which is admittedly obscure. 1 Peter three nineteen isn't the plainest text. And you compare that with clear statements, like what Jesus says to the thief on the cross. This day, you will be with me in paradise. I think it's plain. Jesus wasn't looking at going into hell afterwards. The whole idea of atonement. Jesus says, John 19.30, it is finished on the cross. Why would he descend into hell and suffer anymore? So I think we, we have to interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. A second way to harmonize your passage with the rest of the biblical data is to interpret non-didactic passages in light of the didactic. Now, didactic comes from a Greek word that has to do with teaching. So you recognize that some of your Bible is story, some of your Bible is poetry, prophecy, or whatever. Some of it is just plain, straightforward instruction, teaching. That would be the epistles, namely. They are uh, primarily written to give us teaching. And I think one great example of where people ignore this principle in harmonizing Scripture would be cults, for instance, that try to take, and I've mentioned this before, but Proverbs 8. This is a passage dealing with poetry. There's personification of wisdom here. And they would try to take this text and say, we need to take this text as a source text for teaching about uh, how Jesus was created. This passage was given to us to teach us about the nature of Jesus and his creation by the Father. And they will take that text that is poetic in nature, and it's talking about wisdom, and there's figures of speech and all that, and they will use that somehow to, as, as a license for reinterpreting all these plain statements in not just the Gospels, but the epistles, didactic literature. Just read Colossians chapter 2. All of God is in Jesus. Can you explain that? 
aside from the deity of Christ? No, you can't, logically. But, but they, they reverse this. So please interpret non-didactic in light of the didactic. A third way to harmonize scripture is interpret earlier revelation in light of later revelation. And so this practice acknowledges the progressive nature of revelation. You know, there's many examples that we could look at where earlier or later revelation would appear contradictory. A lot of this would revolve around the old and new covenants. There are places where scripture directly states that God's dealings with men have changed with respects to his covenants, to his progress of revelation. And uh, you even just read the book of Hebrews and see some of that. God doesn't change, but his rules for man, his dealings with men have changed according to the revelation that he has made available to them. I may be thinking of some examples outside of the covenants. For instance, uh, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus makes a statement to his disciples as he's sending them out. He says, you know, don't, don't go to the Samaritans or to the Gentiles. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in Matthew 28, at the end of the same gospel, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Does God change? No. But did God's instructions to his people change? Yes, and it had to do with the progress of revelation he had made available to them at that point in time. So just be aware of that. There are many that, even in the Bible itself, it, it, it concedes, like in First Timothy 4, 3 comes to mind, they were misinterpreting the Bible because they were trying to, really they were refusing to acknowledge God's progress of revelation. And they just want to say, what God said to Israel is what applies to everybody today. And we are the nation of Israel and all that. And uh, they're ignoring the new covenant and the ramifications of it. And Paul has some strong words for such people. But this was a controversy in the early churches. Acts also makes clear. Now, two additional safeguards to the application of the theological principle, two other guidelines we would add, reach outside of Scripture itself, but they're important, and I think they, we'll see they have to do with this theological principle. And we could say the theological principle is, is necessary, and yet because of the unity of truth, because of the coherence of the biblical world view, because of the unity of the spirit that dwells in all of God's people, and because of the interpreter's own vulnerability, our own propensity to be mistaken, it would be wise for any interpreter to further cross-examine his interpretation against the disciplines of historic and systematic theology. And here's what that basically looks like, okay? That's the last two points of how to apply the theological principle. Fifthly, check your interpretation against the work of others. All right? You're not the only duck in the pond. Okay? God doesn't intend for any Christian to be a lone ranger. You don't have any more of the Holy Spirit than the next believer. And so where does that put us? Well, I think there's several principles here as we consider the need to check our interpretation against the work of others, first, don't suppose yourself invincible to misinterpretation. You have a fallible, (laughs) deceitful heart, all right? And you wouldn't be the first person to ignore what others have said to your detriment. In fact, no cult leader 
has followed this principle, checking his interpretation against the work of church history, uh, at least not in a humble, honest way. Also here, we should recognize that the same spirit who has taught you has taught others also. C.H. Spurgeon, in a book written to encourage pastors to read commentaries, the works of others, had this to say toward anyone who might object that all a man needs is to hear from the Holy Spirit. He said this. This is so great. I find it odd that he who thinks so highly of what the Holy Spirit teaches him thinks so little of what the Holy Spirit teaches others also. Man, don't let anybody tell you, well, I don't need to listen to pastors. I don't need to listen to commentaries. I don't need to listen to those Bible scholars because I have the Holy Spirit. And you have to say, are you the only one with the Holy Spirit? How belligerent can someone be, really? That's the height of arrogance and pride. And so there are many commentaries that I could recommend to you that I think would be helpful. And I think that we should realize that one reason God gave us to the church is we may think something is so plain, so clear, it makes sense to us when we are deceiving ourselves. And Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 talks about this, that we should gather with one another. We should fellowship with one another lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So God has, thank God, given the same spirit to others also. Also, we would say don't come up with anything new. Please don't. We have 2,000 years of church history available to us. It's wonderful. And so if you're coming up with something new, you should be a little afraid, okay? That's probably not a good sign, even though you might want to slap your name on something, right? Which is what people like to do. They, They certainly like to be the first one, the only one, to have a particular truth. And then I will just add here, credentials do count for something. Oh, yes. Uh, remember this, 90 scholars with 11 PhDs apiece spent 25 years translating this passage. But today, I'm going to tell you what the original Greek really says. <laughs> I love that. That uh, comes out of one of these Bible study books. Yes, credentials do count for something. Let's humble ourselves and admit that we, we can be helped by others. So check your interpretation against the work of others. But a sixth and final guideline for applying the theological principle has to do with what we would call systematic theology. And this would be, check your interpretation against the greater biblical worldview. You know what's so beautiful about the Bible? And I love this, because I just, you know, in all humility and honesty and love, I love just going, you can go to anybody, anywhere, and know that what you have in the Bible is comprehensive. Doesn't mean it's exhaustive, that it tells us everything we'd like to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. And it's not contradictory. And it's a world view of truth. And so we should consider, as we're checking our interpretation against the biblical worldview, we should consider the theological ramifications for our interpretation. Ask yourself, what are the logical ramifications for what I'm seeing? What what follows? Does this interpretation raise any problems? And uh, when people come up with, you know, these ideas that God has a body, for instance, like the Mormons do because they ignore plain figurative language and they, they just don't understand poetry and literature, they're not just flatly contradicting a lot of scripture. They are raising incredible uh, problems with regards to the entire Christian worldview. But seldom do people think that big. You know, we used to live in, in a culture well, really, it's Western culture used to teach people not just rhetoric and all that stuff and logic, but worldview and philosophy. And so people used to think bigger and deeper, and they used to think 
with a, just a wider angle, and yet so many times today people just think as far as, what does this do for me? Oh boy, that's, that's just wrong, okay? God's word is true, it's true truth, it's true in every sense. And so consider the theological ramifications of what you're claiming is true about the Bible. And then I would say, don't shortchange scripture by only seeking convenient information. Again, many people, this is a very pragmatic American approach to the Bible, they are looking simply for some quick answers to some immediate problems they have. But rather than seeking to obtain from Scripture some kind of quick fix solution, just what we want, see, that's how people run into problems again. Because they're seeing in the Bible what they want to see there. Rather, we should be seeking to obtain from Scripture an entire worldview. If this is the God of the Bible who has propositionally revealed himself to us in the Word of God, then does it not stand to reason that he has given us here something that is far deeper than telling us just how to live from day to day, but it explains all reality. And so as we interpret the Bible, we want to treat it as such. All right, I've gone over time, obviously, but I am wrapping up here, so you can give me the the license of that at least. This is the final lesson I said for our summer semester in hermeneutics, but this has been the theological principle of hermeneutics. And so if we're going to interpret the Bible properly, at some point we must respect the Bible as God's word. That's the theological principle. That's the heart of it. At some point in the future we can we can complete this course and what we'll do is we'll walk through the special principles of hermeneutics. We'll look at uh, how do we approach narrative? How do we approach poetry? How do we approach the gospels or any other specific piece of literature? But uh, hopefully this has been a help to you and let me just close with this. I want to say that the interpreter's work doesn't, it doesn't terminate with exegesis. We go beyond this, just understanding what does the author intend, what did he mean, to also application. There is a place for that. And so if, Lord willing, at some point we can carry on this course, I want you to understand that is full circle. That's the termination. That's the end result of this process of interpretation. It is really exegesis, which is a lot of what we've been dealing with, how to draw out from the text what is really there, not our own ideas, but what the original author intended, and then application. Applying this to my life. All right. Thank you. May the Lord richly bless you in the study of his word.